0: The reading for the day comes from Galatians 5, 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against things like this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the self with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let's follow the Spirit. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Hey, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, that I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We are in our final week of all virtual service, which means we are in our final week of Brief, the series where we are taking on some of the shortest books in the Bible and really finding their meaning and giving you an experience of what it it feels like to read books of the Bible from front to back and experience these texts as a whole as they were written instead of these tiny little excerpts. Now, having said that, for our last week, we're actually not going to read the whole book uh, that we're studying today. And that's because the book that we are going into today is Galatians. It's a little too long for me to read directly to you. Um, It would take about 20 minutes, which means that you could very easily read it on your own um, and do that all in one sitting. I think it can be especially powerful when you do it with others and you kind of dig into it and see what it means to you and how different it is to read it all together versus in individual pieces. And I would encourage you if you do that to come with an open mind, to recognize that there's gonna be a lot of stuff in it that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. Um, This is the point that we made last week about reading the letters is is basically reading someone else's mail and not having all the context. And that's why we do Bible study and we come together. Uh, But getting that sense of the whole really changes things versus taking little tiny pieces out of context. And the reason that we're studying Galatians today for our final piece, even though it's too long to do it in the way that we've been doing it, is twofold. One, it's the book that first really inspired me to start reading whole books of the Bible at a time. It was uh, an experience that I had. Early on in my young adult faith life, where I had been studying this book week by week in a small group. And we were taking these couple of verses at a time and and we were doing a deep dive into Galatians. But we never read the thing as a whole. And after studying it for a whole semester with my college Bible study group, um, I heard it uh, read, sort of performed really out loud at, at a Christian gathering And it completely shifted my perspective on it. So for me, this one just holds a place in my heart as something that comes across really differently if you read it as a whole versus taking individual slices out. Mostly, you'll find out that in the first two chapters out of six, Paul is basically defending himself saying, hey, I thought you guys were listening to me. Why are you listening to someone else now? I'm the best. So in any case, if you read it out loud with someone you love or someones you love, enjoy it, revel in it, hold the fact that you may not make sense of it all, and that's okay. Uh, If you've ever learned uh, a language Other than, uh, you know, if you've ever learned a language basically as an adult or as um, a young person but not from birth, you may have had the experience of trying to figure out how to listen to a conversation and pick up what you can pick up rather than getting distracted by all the pieces that you can't and losing your way. Reading scripture can be like that where if you read the whole book of Galatians, just let it wash over you and see what comes out for you, Um, holding that there's going to be a bunch of stuff you don't understand, and that's okay. The second reason that we're reading just a little chunk of it is because, and that we're doing Galatians at all is because last week we really went hard on Paul. And we kind of broke down these three different traditions of letters attributed to Paul. And one of them... One tradition is the radical Paul, these seven undisputed letters that we know are from Paul. Then there are the disputed letters that really show a much more conservative understanding of the gospel. And then there are the pastoral letters, one of which Titus, we read last week, that are downright anti-Paul. That's reactionary. And so instead of leaving you with a taste of reactionary Paul, that is, you know, not actually Paul, but other folks writing his name. I wanted to give you a taste of radical Paul, the Paul of Galatians. Now, in the book of Galatians, we've got a Paul who spends a couple chapters defending himself because there is a group of churches in Galatia that had been following Paul's teachings and then started following the teachings of some other people in a way that was really explicitly against what Paul was teaching. Paul, if you recall, was a really devoted Jewish scholar before he had a, um, a a mystical experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he became a follower of Jesus. And his relationship to Judaism and to the law really shifted. He still loves the law and the Jewish culture and the Jewish identity that he held and that Jesus held, and He, in his experience of the revelation of God, uh, feels like, okay, this message actually is called to go beyond the bounds of the Jewish identity, which was the chosen people, um, the people from whom the gospel originated, and called to go out, to go beyond that. So he had been, uh, through this revelation from Jesus, sent out into non-Jewish communities, that is, Gentile communities, and bring, like, and he brought the the gospel of Jesus to those communities. There was a big debate going on among Christians who had originally been Jewish. And it was, all right, do all these non-Jewish people need to become Jewish first? Jesus was Jewish. We're all Jewish. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. If you want to get on board with Jesus, you better become Jewish first. And that means doing all of the law and following all of the law that we have followed for our whole lives. It's a huge part of our culture. It, it It's what makes us set apart from the rest of the world. So the question was, do non-Jewish believers have to become Jewish in order to follow this Jewish Messiah, Jesus? Paul firmly was on the side of, no, they don't have to do that first. It's okay. But there were others who disagreed. And in this context of the churches in Galatia, it seems like maybe there was about a 50-50 split of people who were Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. Now, one of the things that we need to understand in order to make any sense of this is the function of the law, Torah. This is a huge part of the scriptures. This is where we get the Ten Commandments. This is where we get a lot of stuff about morality. It's also where we get a lot of stuff about culture. So when I think of the law, uh, there are hundreds of laws. Now, some of those laws are about safety, or at least that's what we kind of interpret back into history. So the kosher laws, for instance, about how to eat. Certain restrictions, you know, they say don't eat shellfish. That may have been a safety issue. It might have kept the community safer to restrict certain types of food that were more likely to make people sick. Then there's stuff about morality. That's where you get uh, the Ten Commandments and and other um, other things like uh, designations for people who are foreigners and laws commanding you to be welcoming and hospitable. Laws about equity and, and creating space for the vulnerable. The, this is all the, you know, protect the orphan and the widow and the poor stuff. So that's, and, and those laws became the basis for all the prophets who were, who were railing on justice, who were like, this is the heart of the law. Then there's a final category of the law, which is really about set apartness. This is about cultural identity. It was really important in those Jewish communities to be Jewish, To have an identity, to be a part of the chosen people. And anytime you have that kind of group identity, it's really important to have boundaries. Who's in and who's out. And a big part of the Jewish law is about defining who's in by their cultural practice. This is where we get some of those laws that seem to make a lot less sense in our culture. Like the mixing of fabrics or other parts of eating kosher or... Um, No tattoos. So the the most important religious ritual in the law about set-apartness was called circumcision. This is actually still a cultural uh, element in our modern context and one that's actually highly debated right now. It probably wasn't, well, there's debate about whether maybe it was for safety um, or about health in certain ways. But the main function of circumcision was a ritual act of faithfulness to God that showed that someone was set apart. And it was incredibly important for uh, Jewish folks uh, to, as a community, participate in rituals of circumcision. Now, you can imagine why having babies circumcised into the community would help um, fulfill that sense of you're being welcomed in you're a part of this but that it might go over really differently with adult converts who were not jewish who were not circumcised saying hey if i'm an adult and i want to follow jesus does that mean i have to become circumcised there were a lot of people who had some objections to that so this is the main like the, the main signal of Jewishness that's up for debate in the book of Galatians. That's why if you read Galatians, you're like, man, I'm reading about penises a lot. And it's just, it's just because it's that in and out part of the law. Are you willing to do the things necessary to become part of the in crowd of Judaism in order to follow Jesus? Paul says you can stay intact. No big deal. That's actually not the point anymore. At least it's not the point for you as a Gentile following Jesus. The main question at the heart of this letter is about something that we call syncretism. Syncretism, which I'm going to say a lot, so just get that into your spirit. Syncretism, syncretism, syncretism. Syncretism is the word uh, that we have for basically the blending of cultural practice into religious practice. And it's become something weirdly controversial. In our modern context, in American Christianity, there is a kind of fantasy that a lot of folks have especially white folks of European descent. That Christianity is somehow beyond culture. That Christianity is a pure religion, not bound up in culture. And therefore, when it is brought to other cultures, that those other cultures need to adopt Christianity in its pure, cultureless form. And that anything conflicting should be abandoned. But that fantasy is actually just white supremacy that steeps itself in everything and the same conversations that we need to be having in our communities about how white culture dominance uh, pretends it doesn't exist by pretending to just sort of be the norm we have to understand that there's the same function in religion and throughout the history of Christianity including all the way back to the first century and to this letter that people who have experienced Christianity already blended with their own culture, in a sense of syncretism, have pretended that this this blending is actually the purest form of Christianity. And instead of disentangling and saying, actually, Christianity can blend with other cultures, or, or my blended Christianity can blend with a third culture, instead of having that freedom to say, we trust the gospel to communicate truth in any number of contexts. They say, no, actually, you have to join my culture. My culture is, is going to dominate here. And if you want Jesus, you'd better become Jewish or in a much more uh, prominent historical context, you'd better adopt European whiteness as an understanding of Christianity. That's bad. <laughs> I think we can all agree on the face that that's bad. And I'll give you some examples. Um, so when um, when Christian missionaries who were coming from a European context that was all blended like like one of the, the examples of syncretism that we all take for granted now is the holidays Christmas and Easter. So When we talk historically about the celebration of Jesus' birth, we don't know when this happened. But somehow, Jesus' birthday celebration got moved, you know, just like out of the blue, not, to the week of the winter solstice, to the week of the shortest day of the year, and also an important uh, non-Christian pagan holiday. The winter solstice was a time that, uh, that the seasons of the earth demanded ritual of change to mark the passing of the seasons. And Christianity chose to kind of blend those things together to say, like, at this time of the year where at this part of the world, it gets cold and dark and the days are short, we remember that the light, Jesus, as described in, in the Gospel of John, the light of the world is coming. That as we enter the darkness, the light is coming. This is a blending. This is a blending of the rituals, the pagan rituals of celebrating the winter solstice and the Christian rituals of understanding the birth of Jesus and the metaphors for the light of the world. Again, at Easter, we have uh, springtime and the ending of winter, the, the celebrations of fertility. That's where the bunny comes from. No bunnies kind of singled out at the cross. The bunnies are, are a holdover. The eggs are a holdover. Those are fertility symbols. Because they were seamlessly brought into a celebration of the resurrection. Because who doesn't love the pairing of resurrection and springtime and new life? That all goes together so well. Syncretism. That's when it works beautifully. But then those same Christian missionaries who were all mishmashed up in European pagan tradition and Christianity went to Africa and to Asia, and they encountered indigenous traditions, spiritualities, and rituals. They brought Jesus, and people were like, bangerang, Jesus, this is great. We'll blend that right into our cultures, the things that we have discerned, discerned to be true about the world and divinity. Jesus fits right in. And the missionary said, oh, no, no, that's heresy. That's blasphemy. If you want to be faithful to Jesus, you'll start celebrating Christmas and Easter, and you will uh, destroy the parts of your culture that are against Christianity. But as many people have noted, they were wiping away the culture that was there and replacing it with white European culture, because they were pretending that that was a sort of pure form of Christianity, one awful example is that the the ritual the rituals around um, remembering or even worshipping the ancestors took place in lots of different ways so for instance, in Cameroon there uh, were these beautiful statues that were in homes um, commemorating the ancestors who had died. And they had prominent places, and, and they were important in ritual and daily life. And Christian missionaries said, if you really want to follow Jesus, you have to smash those beautiful works of art commemorating your ancestors, because you have to deny that heresy, these other gods, and you have to get on board with Christianity as we understand it. That is sin. And any time people would blend it, they started calling that syncretism bad. Ooh, that's, that's a blending of culture. That's, that's uh, polluting Christianity. And there was this fantasy, again, about a pure Christianity that was white And so you can see how anybody who actually wanted to take this into like white nationalist, explicitly white supremacist purity directions could do that very easily. But even folks who would consider themselves, you know, not racist and um, intercultural people who were passionate about international missions, even those folks were bought into basically a watered down, chilled out version of white supremacist um, culture destruction because they were pretending that Christianity and European culture were one and the same. I promised that there were going to be resources that went along with every one of these discussions, and today I'd like to link to you in comments an article by Ross Kane, really talking about this. Um, the article is about how white Christians turned syncretism into a bad thing, when in fact it is foundational to the early church and to the spread of the gospel across the world. Understanding that syncretism is part of the gospel is key to understanding the book of Galatians. And the promise of that blending is that we actually don't have to gatekeep and we don't have to um, try and replicate our cultures. We actually are called to find the truth of the divine as it becomes expressed more and more powerfully across many different cultures. Because, for instance, the worship of ancestors and the understanding of ancestors has now, uh, in a different time, been embraced by folks. African theologians are saying, hey, wait a minute, this is the communion of saints. This is communal salvation. This is the understanding that God's divinity works through generations. This is the gospel up, down, and sideways. This is the people of God, the descendants of Abraham. This is completely in line with the gospel. And in fact, this is showing a truth about the gospel that Western white Europeans didn't know about. And that is the power of that blending and the power of the gospel, which we are limiting every time we try and nail it down to one culture. So to get into Galatians, the book of Galatians breaks down into basically this pattern. Paul is defending himself and saying, hey, you guys, I taught you this stuff before. I'm, I'm telling you the same stuff I've always told you. It's other people who are coming in and changing things up. But the things that I've told you were true have always been true and will always be true. And that's this. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The law, this thing, this set-apartness about Jewishness, it was good. It was good. I'm like, I'm not here to trash talk the law. It served a couple of functions. One, it showed us that no matter how hard we try, we're always going to end up screwing things up. But two, it invited us to actually live with love for our neighbors. And in Jesus' coming, he's coming to fulfill the law, right? Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So the good news of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection is even better because we are still called to love our neighbor, But we do that with the aid of the Holy Spirit. We do that through honoring the the core values of the law, but not necessarily by following them to the letter, because that was about set-apartness. And actually now we are called beyond that set-apart community to build this whole kingdom of God, which reaches the ends of the earth and includes all people. We're called into a new kind of family. And actually that family is a fulfillment Paul goes all the way back to Abraham, right? A fulfillment of that promise that God gave to Abraham about his descendant. His descendant was Jesus. And in fulfilling all of those promises to Abraham, those promises of the gospel, of the inclusion, of the salvation by Jesus, it goes out to the whole world. And so long as we are trying to make everyone under the law, we're actually going backwards. We're trying to bring everybody into Judaism. We're going into this this singular culture when, in fact, all cultures are welcome here. So you can remain in your Judaism, but you don't need to bring someone else into that in order to find Jesus. Paul advocates for this understanding. This is where we get that famous passage that in the gospel, in Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, not male and female, that these designations are not the core of the gospel, and we don't actually need to keep recreating these social uh, distinctions, that we don't need to keep policing people's cultural behaviors, but in fact, it is our faith that saves us. Or rather, it is faith that saves us. Now, there's some debate about that word faith, Because in this text, as in some others of Paul's, it's really unclear whether it's our faith or Jesus's faith that saves us. And when we talk about being saved, the word here is justified, which is about righteousness. And righteousness is right relationship. So basically, Paul is saying we need to get in right relationship with God and with one another. That's the heart of the gospel. Before when we were just being Jewish, we were doing that through the law. And that set us apart, and that gave us accountability. It showed us our shortcomings. But Jesus came to fulfill that so that we could include so much more than one singular culture. And now we are made in right relationship. We are justified by faith. By the faith in Jesus, maybe or perhaps by the faith of Jesus, that Jesus's faithfulness to us and to God actually makes us a whole big family, a new creation. And in that new creation, there is freedom. There is freedom from any one particular cultural identity to express and to live out the heart of the gospel in any number of ways. This is where we get the idea that we are saved not by works, not by what we do, Not by these cultural markers, these expressions of set-apartness, but by faith, the faith of God and our faith. Paul is arguing that our right relationship is a gift from God and that we can express that actually in a lot of different ways. And when we we examine that in that context, that's really a radical shift because at the time— Um, if you wanted to become Jewish, there were a lot of barriers. Uh, There was an in and out barrier for a reason, right? It was about being identified, being the chosen people. So it wasn't very easy to just spread that. And a lot of that was cultural. And so Paul is saying we need to have a multitude of expressions here. What is the heart, heart of the gospel then? A lot of people read Galatians and other works of Paul and they say, well, the heart of the gospel is belief in Jesus. But what does that mean to Paul, the one who is using those words? As you follow his argument through the letter to the Galatians, you see that Paul is saying, you know, people read it as like, you got to believe in Jesus, a.k.a. you have to intellectually agree to the premise that Jesus died for your sins and... Uh, and and that's your ticket into heaven, and that is salvation. What we don't know, or don't think about, or don't talk about enough, and it's mentioned in this article that uh, we've linked here by Ross Cain, is that that's actually really steeped in Western culture. The idea of sin as an offense towards God The idea of atonement or repair as being about individual humiliation and offering oneself um, in uh, in that humiliation to make a repair on an individual basis for the honor of the Lord, which is literally a, a European feudal term. These are all heavily cultured understandings of salvation. And if you never came through historically, never came through, your people never came through feudal Europe, it doesn't actually mean a whole lot. But there's a ton in the scriptures that means a whole lot else to you. If we understand salvation in a more communal way, if we understand salvation as what Paul is talking about here, which is right relationship, then the cross takes on totally different meaning. The cross is fulfilling the law so that we are free to express our love with the core of the gospel, with the core of the law, which is love of God and love of neighbor. And that's why Paul says that belief in Jesus doesn't let us off the hook for like being good people or being transformed. But in fact, knowing God, or as he says in Galatians, being known by God, transforms us, brings us into relationship with the Holy Spirit, who changes us, who grows us, who brings us into fullness. And that's where we start bearing the fruits of the Spirit. This is a list that you might have heard of before today. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. For all of those people who say, Oh, according to Paul, I am saved by grace through faith alone. What does saved mean? Saved doesn't mean a ticket into heaven, at least not in Galatians. Saved means that you become gentle, that you become generous, that you become peaceful, that you become loving, that you are transformed by the Spirit in order to to fulfill the Spirit of the law, which is the heart of gospel teachings, love of God, love of neighbor. That is transformation of those social hierarchies that Paul is saying we need to throw out the window. That's absolutely abandoning the gatekeeping that says some people are more uh, holy than others based on their religious practice or ritual. It means becoming a family together. That's what salvation is, according to Paul. And this is why, as we talked about last week, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan in their book, The First Paul, argue that Paul... Was a Jewish Christ mystic. That for Paul, it was about knowing God and being transformed by God, and that that had this rippling effect, creating a whole new sense of community and family in a way that would change the world by be creating a kingdom that was totally different than the empire around it. The fruits of the Spirit, the transformation of the self, this is the core of the gospel. And you don't need to be circumcised in order for that to happen. You need to know God and be known by God. You need to be in community that transforms you and the social hierarchies around you to create a new sense of family, of equality, so that the people who you are with become brothers, sisters, siblings, instead of socially ordered hierarchies with ins and outs. This changes our theology. And so if we encounter that gospel message and we encounter it in three different cultures and European white Christianity says there is an individual component here where part of this is about me confessing to what I've done, laying it down, and offering myself to a God who I have wronged, that that might reveal something true and powerful about the gospel. But it is not complete and to pretend that it is complete is to pretend that God is white and European and that Christianity must also be. This idea that our theology is pure, it's really precarious. And actually, when you drill down to the heart of the gospel, Paul thinks that it's very simple and can take a lot of different forms in a lot of different cultures. Belief according to Paul, is not belief in doctrine, And I feel like I probably need to say this 40 more times for anyone to really start taking it seriously because we have heard the opposite so many times. Belief is not belief in doctrine. It is not believing the right things about God. Belief is a trust we put in Jesus Christ and in the divine. It is a trust we have to open ourselves to loving God and neighbor that changes us, that bears fruit of peace and love and radical upheaval because when we are different as individuals as communities as churches as family in christ that changes the world that is belief and in that way he's actually not preaching something that different from james one of my favorite gospel authors who says faith without works is dead because they're both talking about the transformation of the self which has impacts on the world around you but paul just really wants to emphasize there's no right or wrong way to do this there's no rules or rituals that are going to get you in. It's actually knowing God. It's trust. Belief is trust. It's not having the right theological ideas. And so when we roll around and we try, uh, you know, find other cultures, and we have this horrible history of missionary working Christianity, where we are imposing culture— as doctrine and saying that's the way to belief we're fundamentally misunderstanding at least Paul's understanding of the gospel that actually those things even though they may have blessed individual communities Paul in this letter is like i was the i was like the best jew You guys don't even understand. Like, I get the law. I studied the law so hard. I studied the law way more than you did. I get it. It's beautiful. It's holy. It was a gift from God. It's not for everyone, and that's fine. And all of these cultures have something beautiful to offer. But when we approach the gospel the way Galatians does, when we approach it um, giving room for syncretism, it is saying we expect to see Christ, to see Jesus, to see the kingdom in a new and beautiful way, in a different culture. And instead of policing other cultures and trying to make them look like us, we need to bring the gospel into new spaces and then sit at the feet of our new teachers, the people who are going to show us what the divine has revealed to them through their generations, through their ancestors, through their teachings. We need to stop We need to decolonize our Christianity in order to see the gospel. Because if we can't do that, we are seeing the gospel of white supremacy. We are not seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is transformation of the soul and of the community and of the world. It bears the fruits of the spirit and it can teach itself to us through any number of beautiful rituals, from Easter and Christmas to ancestor worship and beyond. We cannot keep limiting our God. That is the sin here. Syncretism can be holy and good. Will you pray with me? God, it is so hard for us to lay down our culture, even those cultures that have been imposed on us by others against our will. God, help us to disentangle our identities from your word. Help us to understand that our Christianity will never be cultureless, and that is okay. Because the heart of your Christianity, of your scriptures, of your gospel, of you, Jesus, your heart expresses itself beautifully in every culture. Help us to sit at the feet of the teachers of other cultures of your cosmos, of your people, spread across the world and across time. May we have the humility to see beyond our own ego and culture, to see the beauty of your divinity wherever it flourishes. May we repent of the ways that we have imposed our culture when we are trying to bring you, Christ, into the world. And may we grow together as decolonizers, as faithful believers, as we work towards that true belief, which is trust and transformation and the flourishing of your kingdom. Amen.